Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Harvey Anderson, who's the General Counsel at HP. Now, it's a great discussion. Harvey takes us through his career, kicking off as an engineer, and then his time at organisations like Netscape. He talks about that as formative in his career, some great case study examples of his time at Mozilla, right through to HP. Now, the three things that I took away from this episode that really resonated with me. The first one was that Harvey talks about the importance of opportunity and industry rather than title. That makes sense to me, being in the right place, right time, and thinking about the industry you're in and the opportunity you've got rather than necessarily just the title that someone's given you. The second thing that really resonated with me was the importance of listening to your advisors. Harvey talks about an example where he didn't do that and where it didn't turn out all that well. Going down a particular path that everyone's committed to when you've got an opportunity to turn back and you don't take that, that's a hard thing to do. We talk a bit about that. And finally, how the future role of the GC is so much more than being just a legal advisor and how important business acumen is in that role. So I absolutely love the discussion. I'm sure you will too. So just sit back, chillax and enjoy the episode. Hi there, Harvey. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me today. Now, fantastic. Now, Harvey, I'm going to do a very high-level run-through of some of the key milestones or the positions you've had in your career, just to kind of set the scene for the audience. Started off as an engineer before going into law, and then if I can reel off some of the organizations that you've worked at, and then we'll come back and do a bit of a deeper dive, but Netscape, Medscape, Flywheel Communications, Seven Networks, Mozilla... AVG, and now you're currently, of course, the general counsel of HP. Going back right to the beginning, your early days as an engineer, tell us about that and then the transition to law from there. Yeah, sure. This was actually my second job right after college. Right after college, I worked on the Hill as a legislative aide for Senator Levin from Michigan, which was fantastic. But I, I almost starved to death back there. Yeah. As, a, as a junior aide, you're making below poverty. And then uh, I kind of realized that I had an engineering degree by the way, and I remembered <laughs> that, that occurred to you. <laughs> there was this career fair, and I, and I went to it and got an offer to go move to California from DC and to work as an engineer for Pac Bell. This is right after the ATT had split up. Yep. And, you know, I, I'm 21, and what I heard was I could get paid more and I could live on the beach in California and work. That's, that's actually what I heard. Yeah. So I, that gets me <laughs> engineering. So I'm working by day as an engineer, I'm living on Venice Beach at night. And let's, needless to say, the engineering thing was not going that well for me. Right. Let's say I got a lot of feedback that engineering was not my forte. I did learn about information management, though. Like that was my first exposure. And I realized I really like that. I like yeah. the notion of information management. And then during that time, I started going to these as a volunteer. I would go to government affairs activities with the government affairs group. And I realized, oh, that seems super cool. I liked, really like to yeah. do external affairs. So I caught the head of external affairs. I met one time at one of these events in LA and I called him for a year asking for a job, a year. I love that persistence, Harvey. Is that right? Calling for a year. Messages. He would never call me back. You know, it just, I, I just, I just put it on my calendar and I kept hounding him, hounding him, hounding him. And one day I'm at work. It's literally, it's like a year later. 
I get a call. I'm like, hey, this is Rich Roll. I'm like, nah, come on. Who is this really? And it was Rich. And he's like, yeah, we have this opening. I'd like to talk to you. Do you want to come up to San Francisco? And let's talk about this job. I'm like, of course, I'm on the next plane. And that's how I moved out of engineering into external affairs, government relations. And just to stop you there for a second, who taught you or or the persistence of, I'm going to call for a year, I'm going to stick it in the calendar every week, and I'm calling (laughs) until something happens. Where did you get that from? Where was that? Where where did that attribute come from? You know, that's a great question. And I'm not sure. I, I can only say that there was one of my mentors you know, had that expression, you got to rip victory out of the jaws of defeat. Yep. <laughs> and yeah. and I, I don't know. It just didn't occur to me that we couldn't. It just didn't occur to me that, what do you have? Like, I, I don't know. It just didn't. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I see so much today, just the answer no being definitive and that's it. And I, I don't think I've seen that kind of persistence. There is so much to be said for that kind of persistence. And I've seen it work against me when I've seen the persistence. I've been the recipient of that kind of persistence. You know, it wears you down a little bit, but there you, you think to yourself, this person is not going to give up. And if they've got that level of persistence, energy and commitment, then they're going to do well or, you know, they're going to get somewhere. So yeah, I think it's an attribute uh, under underrated. Yeah, no doubt. I think what it translates for me into later on in life, though, and when I think about candidates that I hire, it's their passion for something. And I don't care necessarily whether it's the job that they're actually doing, but when I look at their skill set and their resume, like, is there something that you're passionate about that you're just like out there doing because you want to? That's the kind of people that I want to surround myself with. Just generally, yeah. that's, a, that's a big indicator. I'm going to assume you have the skills, but that thing, yeah, it, it stands out. I'll just share one last little thing. When I went to the Hill, when I left college to, to go back to D.C., my mentor Mitch, Arnold Mitchum, he told me, it's going to be okay, baby. And I'm like, how do you, I'm like, how do you get a job on the Hill? And he said, we just walk the halls. I'm like, okay. So yeah. there I am with my stack of resumes, walking around, knocking on doors, not knowing like how improbable it was to get a role like that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I didn't have a super huge, he gave me a few people to talk to. So he got me a start, but it was mostly walking the halls and knocking on doors. I'm like, oh, I'm like, okay, that's how it's done. Yeah. So yeah. It's Pounding the pavement. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and then, so I've heard you speak before about the impact that the time you had at Netscape and how that was quite formative for you. So tell us a little bit about that. And then I'd also like to talk a little bit about the kind of the crossroads in your career and what are the influencing factors when you found yourself at those or on those crossroads? Yeah, sure. There's a ton of inflection points. Unfortunately, uh, some of them come with a lot of pain and some with yep. some some growth. Netscape was my first dream job. And, and it started with me seeing this article in the paper when there were newspapers. I was working at McCutcheon and I saw this, about this little tiny article about this company called Netscape and the web. I'm like, oh, that seems super cool. I'd love to work there. And, but I didn't know how to get there. And I didn't have that same, for some, for some reason, I didn't go pound the doors on that one. But a friend introduced me to, to someone there, said they were looking for a head of IP. I went down there. I met with the team. It was like a, an instant love fest. And they hired me like the, the next week. But what happened there was it's like the horizon of possibility opened up. Like the, the essence of, the, of Silicon Valley is, this, is that idea that anything's possible. You can make anything happen. Like that was now I'm around a whole bunch of people fundamentally believe that who've been at other startups who have failed who have now come to another one and so that was one thing that just ingrained deeply anything's possible Two, the power of the web 
Yep. And like, don't bet against the web. And then yep. and this whole idea of using the web. Now, there's a lot of things that we missed there, um, like the web fundamentally, what it was going to do. But you know what else it did during that time? You know, when you grow up in the firms, they're super structured. Like, and it's like, and they're very hierarchical. And you've had, yep. to, you had, you don't get anywhere any props unless you've been there for 20 years. Well, in the web world, that's just not true. We had new business models. Everything was new. We were doing something completely new. The technology did not exist. The interactions did not exist. Yep. All brand new. So it was a level playing field. So you could just come in and you were measured on your ability and talent and ability to absorb in that space. So so for me, it was so freeing. And there was a purpose to it. And the whole idea that this broader communications world, would, I believed, would have would lead to a more open and just world because information was more accessible. So it had yeah. this deeper purpose. And it was the first time I really had worked in a really purpose-driven place. I remember yeah. in, at PacBell, I was working at a monopoly where your, yeah. where your profits were, were statutorily set by the Utilities Commission at that time, right? <laughs> I mean, that was yeah. the world that was. It, it almost sounds like, I'm just listening to it, it's almost like democratizing opportunity if you like, so that it was anyone that was in the organization, unlike perhaps at the traditional law firm where you knew you had to be 20 years there 20 years and there was a certain structure to your progression. It sounds like what you found yourself in at Netscape is this a world of new opportunities that anyone, despite their level, could take advantage of. And then it was all about how hard you work, presumably, and which of those opportunities you focused on. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that the kind of early indicators of that success was I settled this one patent trademark case dispute against us with a meeting with Mark Andreessen. That's what the other party wanted. Fundamentally, really? that's what they wanted. And yeah. so, when, but it took us to, to strip away all the BS and say, what is it you actually want? And we could yeah. facilitate a legitimate review of your technology and your product to see if it worked in their portfolio. That's what they wanted, a fair shake. Yeah. Another time, this was like my first big patent case that I led. It was Netscape versus Wang. And and I, you know, oh, we wow. were talking yeah. about like the power of the web. And so what I did was I said, hey, let's open up our prior art search to the web. So I did this post and said, hey, we're looking for prior art around these issues. Let us know. Because I knew that there's prior art out there. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah just find it in the time frame allowed in that case. And it, which is always a challenge in patent litigation. And all this prior art started rolling in. Now, remember, you had a community of people, like because there was a developer organization and people that were kind yeah. of behind what we did. So it, they were inclined to fight against this patent and sent us all this prior art. Some of that prior art was used later on in our invalidity motions. And yeah. that got covered in Time Magazine, that action. Oh, how cool. And so that was the first time, like, it was like taking these principles that they talked about and applying them in your domain. That's where you yeah. realized, oh, yeah, you can actually, that motion and mechanism to put it in practice. So, yeah. I'm thinking to myself, Harvey, there's a, that younger generation out there listening, thinking of Wang. What, what, what is Wang? <laughs> <laughs> and I'll never forget that green typeface as it came across your computer when those internal messages. So, that, yeah. that's, so the younger generation will have no idea what we're talking about right now. Any other crossroads, inflection points, you know, influencing factors that when you look up back in your career that were kind of formative for you? that you yeah. want to give a shout out to? Yeah, sure. Certainly the time in Netscape, which was driven by the environment and the people yeah. and, the, and the mindset. That was probably the most formative. Yeah. And I could list people that did that, like Roberta Katz and Kent Walker, who were 
really influential. And, and Jim Barksdale at the time, you know, I just remember him saying, if you see a snake, kill it. Don't play with dead snakes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Form a committee to kill it. You know, like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. As a way of going about business, I would say a couple other big parts were we were buying this company once. So this was later on at a, another company where I was the COO. And our, our advisor said, hey, don't buy this company. And I went ahead because I thought it was the right thing. I, you know, we told everyone, the board was all behind it. I was leading on this work. It turned out to be a terrible acquisition. Yep. And I learned there, listen to your advisors. Like yep. really, like when an advisor pulls you aside and says, let's take a walk. Yep. Tries to tell you something. And tell me, what was it that kind? What was it that you had felt you'd been you'd committed to a path? You told people about that path, and it was just going to be hard work to kind of reverse from that path and take the advice. I, I'm I'm interested. That's what the, what was it? That was, was that it. Like you'd we set were, expectations. Yeah, we we're back in New York, closing the deal, working through the documents. It was kind of last minute, but. It, yep. it was a big red flag because he knew he fundamentally knew what was underneath that company that it, right. it, was, a, it was lipstick on a pig in a way yeah nothing against pigs right yeah um, <laughs> and and i just i couldn't i couldn't imagine the other path of unwinding yep. everything we'd said and what that took would take yep. so that was one another big and some of these are going to sound like failures but some of them i guess some of them were you know yep. they're they come at a price. Learn. That's where our learnings come from. I tell you, when I think yeah. back in my career, you know, it's the hard lessons, the ones that resonate the most and that stick with you, the ones often that come from failure. Yeah, I worked at this this startup, and it was when I say startup, I was, I mean, I bought the desk. Yep. More money than we had chairs, like you know, <laughs> let's put it that way at the time. And during that process, I, I really another inflection point was the discipline about around product management and a minimum viable product yep. and like we over-designed this thing it was super complicated and yep. it was like perfect it was set up for like a, a niche audience but that's that's not how you get where you need to go we could have built a whole lot less spent a lot yep. less money and been attracted to a much wider addressable market if we roll back some of all of our features so yep. there i learned not necessarily to listen to the board and the founders like you know you yep. have to you have to bring your own judgment to it they yep. have their perspective Yep. You know, at that time was spend, 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 get going. Right? You know, you, you can't spend fast enough because it looked like there was there was so much money. And so that was a kind of an inflection point to, to again, to this one says sort of trust your own instinct a little bit yep. too. Don't necessarily. Certainly on my experience there is, you know, you've got trying to get progress over perfection. And we all think our baby when we're, when we're creating our baby that it's beautiful, but we need to get the ugly baby out there into the market and to get right. the feedback and yeah. not be afraid because the more you internalize and you know work towards perfection typically the further down the wrong path you're going because you're not getting that constant feedback loop and getting a chance to shape what you're you know, producing for whoever the the customer is that's right and also in both of those two experiences i learned as much as we might be ambitious and think our technology or workflow or whatever solution we have is going to in it disrupt your world yeah your audience has to want some disruption or be open to it yeah. and in this case these two markets we were selling to that one was doctors and the other one was lawyers yeah that's a tough market to sell to unless hang you're on hang on Harvey. you telling me that lawyers are hard to sell to is that what you're saying <laughs> i'm saying that they don't absorb <laughs> technology and change very yep. well especially when it involves change of workflow yep. it's, it's still the same today now, we, I see that in the teams that we work with. Now, they yeah. want tools, but they don't want to change their 
they don't actually want to change yeah. workflow versus in the financial, the fintech services, like they're, they can't get enough. Right? Yeah. yeah. And there's no doubt in any kind of product led company that finding that product market fit, that in my mind is the hardest part of any, you know, scaling and so forth. Once you've got that product market fit, great, but actually finding it early on, that's I reckon the hardest bit. That's when you're out there lost in the wilderness, yeah. trying to, you know, get those customers in and paying for what you're building, particularly when those customers are lawyers. Yeah. I'll add one more like inflection point. And this was when I was at Mozilla and we launched this thing called Do Not Track. And it was a privacy initiative. And it basically was a feature in the browser. Yeah. Um, that would tell servers, content servers and publishers that you don't want to be tracked. And it seems like a pretty simple and good idea. It gives people, it's a, there was optionality around it. Well, at that time, when we launched that product, which was putting policy into product, it went completely against the digital ad industry. Yeah. It, it was completely disruptive. I had no idea. Yep. The magnitude of the, uh, the visceral hate and disruption that that feature had caused and, and the animus that was directed at me and Mozilla at the time for doing that. We all, I ultimately testified at the U.S. Senate about this feature in, around privacy. And there was just, yeah, it, it was just many against one. And, and look where we are now. Yeah, well, there are features, exactly. Look where we are yeah. now. That feature yep. is foundational in the browser. You see Google and Apple building this into their own ecosystem. Correct. Own way for that very reason, right, to manage some of the tracking and create control around it. So it happened, but it was painful. And and, and the just that inflection point, realizing sometimes you just, you're just going to take on some heat if you're to do the right thing. And in a, in a similar time, we launched this uh, Homeland Security tried to make us take down an app that was on our web store when I was at Mozilla. And I had to fight with our CEO about responding to Homeland Security and saying that's wrong, right? There's no yep. warrant, there's no cause, there's no evidence. You just can't do that. This is this gets right to the, the core freedoms of, of a marketplace and publishers without any of this. So our response back to Homeland Security was pretty much show us the warrant, show us, yep. the, show us the court order. We're happy to comply. They had none of that. Yep. And so the outcome of that whole piece was sometimes, oh, and we got great response, you know, around the world. Media really stepped in behind that positioning. For the position that you took. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The, yeah. And it was a huge brand boost for the organization. Yeah. And they, you know, we were actually doing kind of the right thing in that case. But doing the right thing doesn't always feel good. That's no. That was the learning there. That And one other thing that kind of resonates with me there, the privacy setting on the browser there and Mozilla, I mean, and, and looking how the importance that feature has today, it's often a question of the timing in the market. I mean, you might have a great feature, a great product, but you might be years way too early for whatever reason. And I think there's quite a lot of data out there which says, which shows that probably the single most important determinant of success of any kind of new business idea is actually not the quality of the idea, but it's the timing, the timing in the market. Is the market ready for what you're delivering? And it sounds like from you were early on in the piece at that point about the importance of privacy in your search browser. Yeah, that's a, that's, yeah. you summed it up. Timing yeah. is everything. Timing is Same everything. The medical records, the electronic medical records for physicians, which was one of the product of that other company. Yeah. And that was pre-Affordable Care Act. Yeah. You know, and post Affordable Care Act, electronic medical records are, are like essential, like everyone, of course, because they need it for reimbursement now. Yeah. So timing changed.
made all the difference. Fantastic. Harvey, you, t- you touched on a little bit before about passion and employees. One of the questions I, I like to ask is, you know, when you're building a team around you, what are you looking for? And so I'd love to do a bit more of a deeper dive in passion because certainly I know when I interview, one of the key things I'm looking for to see is what is what's lighting up the sparks in the eyes. When, when do the eyeballs really open up? What is it that the person that I'm speaking to is passionate about? So I'd love to hear more about that, well, whether that attribute or other attributes that you're looking for when, when you're building a team around you. Yeah, sure. Well, certainly that one, that's one. And and how do you find it? How do you look for it? How do you probe for it? Is it what you see in the CV? Is it the questions that you're asking? Well, and I'll ask directly. Yep. What are you really passionate about? (laughs) Like what what floats your boat? What is that thing that you just love to do that just gives you great joy? Like that you're passionate about. And and it can be work. It could be home. It could be your family. It doesn't matter. I just need, it needs to be something. I would say there's some other factors that, that, that go into the, the process, though. Certainly passion is one of them. And let's assume your technical competence is there. Yep. And then there's this kind of your aptitude and personality relative to the rest of the team. So, you know, I'm one personality type. I do not need seven more people like me on my yep. team. I need people that are less playful, that are, are more organized, that are more methodical, that are, you know, more cautious that people that like in some roles, the thing that I might really need is rigor in your analysis. Like that might be the one of the, the key attributes and, you know, yep. need some communication skills too. So it, it, what we're looking for is often a function of, of kind of what other parts we have and yep. how to complement, you know, the existing strengths and weaknesses of the team. So you might be the right person at another team, but in this yep. team, it would be too much of the same thing. You know, you can't have everybody playing the same position. Bottom line, put aside the actual function. So I think the other thing that that I look for is your emotional, is your EQ and and, and what kind of, like, how are you picking up on the signals? Because that that just signals everything about how you're going to perform in an organization and and how self-aware you will be. So I'll stop there. And those are some yep. of Certainly the EQ, self-awareness, that, that to me, such key attributes towards that cultural fit. Depending, of course, on you know, what kind of culture you've got in the organization, but we certainly talk about that a lot in our organization. What kind of a, and that's one of the things I, it's a question I ask, what kind of a cultural fit is this person going to be in the organization? And that's sometimes hard to work out, especially at an interview. But to me, that is one of the strongest determinants about as to whether someone's going to be successful in the role that they're taking on. And it also assumes that you want to preserve the culture you have. Yeah. Because sometimes you're trying to change that culture. Yeah. And that's a fair point. I really like to add different DNA because yeah. I think cultures need to evolve to reflect the time and the place that you're in. And, you know, like right now, I think in the legal world, there's just a lot of of transformation. So the people that come in, they need to be somewhat visionary, sort of yeah. self-started and can picture a world where we operate very, very differently. Differently, yeah. Okay. Using tools, using digital platforms, that they care about workflow. I mean, there's like our work is workflow. And until we really embrace the yeah. engineering that we need to do around the, pro- the process engineering of our work, we won't get the efficiencies that we want. Yeah. And then we stuck doing the, the less impactful things versus the high impact things. Yep. 
I think that kind of dovetails into, I, I want to talk a little bit about diversity and inclusion. I know how important that's been at HP in the past. I know that the previous GC there, Kim Rivera, had a strong focus on that and ensured certainly in law firm selection and law firm time was distributed in a way that met your DNI goals. Talk a little bit about that, the importance of that and the kind of initiatives that you're putting in place there or you're working on to get the kind of diversity. I think that we're starting, you're starting to talk about diversity of thought, of opinion. Talk a bit about that for us. Yeah, sure. That's super important. And, and I would just have to say, you know, HP has been just really groundbreaking, you know, from the top. You know, we have the most diverse board in the tech sector and everyone fundamentally believes that we get better performance from diversity. Like that's where it starts. It's not diversity yep. just because. Yep. It's because we think we get better outcomes. Fundament and, and diverse using in all kinds of ways. I mean, that also includes being international. As a multinational, having just a U.S. experience, which I have to watch out for myself sometimes, is yep. oh yeah, we need a global piece, or yep. we need you know. There was the diversity holdback initiative that Kim started, which is fantastic, and we are now at over I think ninety seven percent compliance with that. With our firms that work with us, I'm super happy about that, and we're taking it farther and into to two other dimensions. One is the Mansfield rule, which we adopted last year. This will be our first year if we get certified. Then the Mansfield rule that requires that fifty percent of our pipeline for our senior our senior roles be diverse. I love that. I love yeah. the focus on the pipeline. Right. And, and it's not just one person that's diverse. It's 50% of the pipeline. Yeah. So you have a real broad range. There's a bunch of science behind having a pool of people that are diverse that you're looking at relative to the rest of the pool and, and not focusing on the actual outcome. So we've implemented that. And, a, and at times that that's hard. It's, it's not always expedient. Yeah. Like I've seen people that I wanted to hire that I thought would be great for the job. But, hmm, I just made this yep. commitment over here. I mean, let me just stop and go through it. And it's turned out to provide great candidates for us. The other thing that we're doing is is the other extension of the Mansfield rule. And this one's even harder. And, and, and we'll, maybe we can talk about this in a year is when there are strategic assignments, before you pick the person, make sure that 30% of the, of, the can, of the people that you're considering for that strategic assignment are diverse. Yes, yeah. So that... That diverse group of talent you might not know that exists in your organization has an opportunity for those, for those experiences that move them up in their careers, right? Because if you don't get those, then you don't get to the next level. Then you don't get to the director level or the VP or yeah. the DGC or the GC level. And they're often not going to be in your direct domain either. So that one I'm super excited by. And, and then the other thing about a couple of years ago, you know, I didn't have a lot of headcount. We didn't have a lot of opportunities to hire new people. You know, even though HP is like targets, targets HBCUs and does all this work in other places where there's, there's more growth typically in the technical fields, I realized, okay, well, D&I, there's the hiring part, yep. but there's the inclusion part. So you got to get that right too. So how do you create an inclusive environment? So there's a bunch of practices. So if you don't have a lot of job openings, yep. you can still ensure that your environment is inclusive. And, and inclusive because you, why? Because I want to get the best performance out of everyone that's there. And so we would go through these exercises of, and sometimes we gamify them in our, in our smaller meetings. Like, you know, when you're having your team meeting, you get points if you make an inclusive statement. So yes, and gets you a point, yep. you know, like that's all, or let me amplify that statement. All these practices, or even um, noting that there might be certain people that don't speak up in a meeting going back and saying, hey, you haven't said anything. I'd like to hear 
really ask you to, to, to participate so that you create this inclusive environment. And why? Because you're trying to create belonging. And with belonging, you have the, the retention part, right? Yep. It's one thing to get folks in the door, but if you don't have a culture that where they feel included in a sense of belonging, no matter what kind of targets and goals you have, it's not going to matter. Belonging and psychological safety. Yeah. Feeling that you can be heard, you can say what's on your mind and that there aren't going to be repercussions. You are safe in the environment that you're expressing your view. That That is one of the key things, I think, to achieve You know, the best out of a team and the individuals in that team. Do you feel comfortable speaking your mind and are you going to feel safe in that environment? Yeah, and that's an ongoing effort too because it's, yeah. it's hard to predict. Like you can, I mean, you just, it, it's like... It's like the grass. You always got to cut it. You got to yep. feed it of water. You, you got to work on it. Absolutely. You go back and weed and it gets better. And then like, oh, where'd that come from? I got to go yep. dig that out. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on a little bit. A couple of themes we hear a lot on this show that I like to get your view on and when this is a theme that resonates with you. But one is the need for a legal department to be run more like a business. That's the first one. I'll ask your thoughts on the second one is an organization's journey towards digitization and what that actually means for the legal department. So what are your thoughts on both of those themes, the need to run the legal department like a business and and the digitization journey for a legal department? Let's take the easier one, the digital platform. So um, I'm a firm believer that legal departments need a digital platform. I'm a firm believer that we need to really bring in and adopt process engineering to understand that we actually have processes and workflows and then to actually engineer them. And then once they're engineered, you can actually build them in parts of them into your, into your platform. Yep. I'm a firm believer that with that digital platform, and I'll be specific, right? If you think about all the matters that we deal with, not knowing how many matters you have, what time you have, how long they take to process, what the obstacles may be, yep. how growth rates are changing in, in your matters. Yeah. Who should be doing the work? Yeah. And it's not about measuring the people themselves. This is just at the aggregate level. It's like running yep. blind. So I, I built, when I was at ABG, we used ServiceNow as a platform to, to yep. do matter management. When I was at Mozilla, we built one on Bugzilla, the open source bug tool. Same thing to kind of, to get a handle of what's happening and to make the work easier, by the way. I'm not into it just for the sake of it being quote, data-driven. Like just saying that, I don't know what that means unless you actually focus on like the real senior metrics and that there might only be one or two and they might be different for each function. Like in the IP world, it might be, you know, cost per patent or in another world, it might be cost per billion in revenue in terms of supporting a a market facing go to market team. I'm open to what it is, but I know that there is, there are some senior metrics. And by the way, it might not need a big platform to get it. You could just calculate this through some very, you know, very accessible numbers. Yep. But it's but there typically there's a little bit you have to do some counting in some ways to kind of understand trajectory and trends. So I'm kind of all in on on that part of it, but not to the part of just producing data reports for the sake of data reports. Yep. We even went through a process. We had a tiger team that came up with three core filters to see if data that you were going to measure or, or metrics were valuable. So that it's almost like a, the counter to, oh yeah, you want to track this? Does it pass these three, this test? Yep. And, and so you need some kind of filter to tell you. To your first question about, should it be run more like a 
business. I'm not sure about that. Yeah. I have to say, I mean, there's a, I mean, inherently we are part of the business. We are a client service organization, but our focus is on impact and really on making impact on the business goals. Yeah. So to the, if you mean running a business, if, if running, running like a business means you get measured on how much impact you make on the goals of your organization, then yes. I think it's a great definition, actually. I think that is a superb definition because there's no point being measured against separate goals. So there's no point being measured as an independent business. It, it has to be aligned, doesn't it, to the organizational goals. And if you're making an impact on those goals, that must be the ultimate kind of assessment of the performance of the legal department. I think so. I mean, there's certainly, there's a trend to how can this legal department produce revenue, whether you're going to sell assets or, or, yep. or IP monetization that will offset your cost. But at the end of the day, I don't think that's translating to any shareholder value. I mean, shareholders aren't valuing your business for that. Yep. I mean, perhaps they are, but I would, yep. that would be a shocking business if that was material enough or meaningful enough that your shareholders would care yep. versus you know, increasing sales or revenue or OP or, you know, breaking down market access barriers or, you know, launching new products that yep. expanded your profit pool. Yeah, I would just find that that hard to believe. And, and I don't say it's necessarily the wrong thing to do because you might have to for fiscal reasons. And, that, and some departments do that. And that's and that totally makes sense in those environments, in those financial environments. Yep. That's not a path that I pursue, though. Let's project out in the future a little bit, maybe five, 10 years, what, what, what do you think the role of a GC is going to look like in the future? And how is it going to differ to, to the role, what the role looks like today? Yeah, I think the shape of that role has changed a lot in the past five years. I think yeah. you're, you're seeing a kind of the, that split of the traditional GC that managed, that was focused on risk management and corporate affairs solely versus those that are deeply involved in the business. And there are business executives with a legal background. Yep. So in the future, that's what I see the GC is. It will just be another one, part of your leadership team. It's a business executive with a legal expertise. So it's not the, it's not the kind of legal advisor, if you like, sitting at the board, giving their input on the legal issues as and when they arise. That's not the kind of role that, that you envisage. No, it certainly encompasses that. Like you got to yep. hit those, you have to hit those balls, those, those yep. strikes come, you know, when they come yep. down, but it's, it's got to be more than that. I think fundamentally, and I think each of the kind of those prototype GCs that I see weigh in in different areas. Sometimes it's in public policy. Sometimes it's in business development. Sometimes they take on other parts, administrative roles of the organization, which inherently puts them deep into the business. So it, it, it will be some blend of those things. Yeah. And when you're the kind of GCs that the, the, and the folks that I see in our team that have that, those GC qualities to me, they're very worldly and their business acumen is high. Yep. They have inputs and views on things that go beyond legal. I mean, they don't have to always be the decision maker, but they can be a part of that cabal that makes helps make those decisions. That's quite interesting. And if you've seen those in the past, do they have the formal training tool or at least the experience? Like I'm, you, for example, you took some time taking the COO role in, in one, of, one of your past roles, so getting that operational experience. 
How important is that? Because I have to say that's, that's one of the regrets that I have heard in some of our interviews saying, if I had my time again, I would have spent more time either formally getting an MBA or getting more operational experience in the business as part of my overall training to become a better lawyer or a better GC. So it kind of sounds like that's what you have in mind too. Yeah, and I'm not sure how you get there. You can certainly yeah. function. That's one way. Yeah. But I think you can also get there even if you don't run functions. Sometimes just your expertise and what you know and what you've seen is very valuable beyond the pure legal experience. You see it on the M&A side. Yeah. So if you think about a really great M&A counsel, they're, they're, the value you're getting from them is not in the definitive agreement. It's yeah. in the negotiation and the strategy and the positioning and the messaging. They're closer to the investment banker side, right? They, they yeah. blend in there a little bit more, even though they have a core area over here. I think that's a great example of that, where they lean in well beyond just the legal piece. Yeah. The other thing is, it's interesting that you mentioned those operational roles. There was a time in my career, I, was, I remember I was talking to an a executive search firm one time. This is like maybe 10 years ago. And and they said, well, what is it that you want to do? You've got all these COO world jobs and you did BD, you got COO. Like, it's confusing. Like, yeah. do you want to be a GC or do you want to be something else? Like, no one's going to like you with these other things on your experience and your background. Oh, there's some old school thinking for you, isn't there? Well, I thought it was pretty small-minded. Like, I would like yeah. someone that had those other experiences. I mean, I would love, uh, to me, that seemed like just what you would want. Like, a legal advisor that had actually been outside of legal. Yep. Like had to make the same business decisions that their clients were making. So I relished that kind of diverse experience, but it was funny. The feedback that was yep. sent to me was, you know, you have to stay on this very narrow defined path. I remember speaking with Cam Finlay and one of the some advice that he was giving when we were talking on the podcast was recruiters, when they were reaching out to him or others and asking for people with this kind of experience in this kind of industry. And what Cam was saying was, no, 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 you don't need the precise experience in the precise industry. What you're looking for is someone who can actually adapt and grow and learn other industries. That's the kind of person rather than going for that narrow search of that person must have done this very thing before. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it certainly helps, but it also will somehow in some ways perpetuate the same the same level. That narrows the perspective that one brings to the situation. Harvey, a couple of questions I love finishing off with. The first one, uh, what have you spent too much time worrying about in the past that hasn't been time on reflection well spent? Good question. Um, let's just start with worrying. Like the, worrying. The, the whole act of worrying, worrying about the future yep. and what's going to happen and what the right next job is worried about worrying about your performance what others think about you that's just a waste of time yeah one you can't control it so why are you actually i mean that's yeah. the reality you can't control what others think you can yeah. control what you do yeah i can control my actions i can't always control the results even though i get measured on them fundamentally yeah. i can't really get my hands around the results and i find that when i spend my when i'm spending time picturing how this future is going to like things are going to unfold I've left the present and kind of moved out into a, a, a zone that yeah. is not really healthy. I mean, it doesn't mean I don't have a vision and we don't strive and target things, but, and it's really simple to slip from, I'm going to work hard on this till it's going to, to this picture of it's going to be great. And it's going to be what it is. I can only control the pieces I do right now. 
And, and even in this role, I think you have less control in many yeah. ways. The more senior the role, the less actual control and the more influence I think you have. I tell you what, as a piece of life advice, being able to be, so that to me translates to what I think about being more present. I'm very similar, always thinking about, okay, what do I need to do? What's next? And what, what are the things that might go right, might go wrong next? But it's really hard to do that in a way which you are still balancing being really present, present for whatever, family, friends, work, whatever it might be, and being able to keep yourself in the moment without always being some future unknown or more difficult moment. So that's how it translates for me. Yeah, exactly. I'd also add that if I were to tell my 25-year-old self, choose industry and spaces over job titles. Your, Your success and opportunity will be uh, more dramatically impacted by the business that you're in, the industry, the sector, the timing of where you are, as opposed to what actual title you have. Yep. Like, so it'd be better to be in a hot, growing, tumble to space, changing, if that's what you want, and be the janitor there than to be yep. X, you know, pick a title because you're going to have more opportunity and it's going to be growing and it's going to be hot. So those forces have a lot more influence versus just trying to be the GC at something. And that sounds like it, well, illustrated with your time at at Netscape in an environment, a time, an industry that is exciting and, you know, going somewhere that's new rather than being a perhaps more senior person in a much more stable or less exciting industry. That absolutely resonates with me. Exactly. Well, Harvey, it's been an absolute sensation speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. I've absolutely enjoyed it. Thank you, Jim. So have I. You're a great interviewer anytime you want me on the show. Fantastic. Let's check check in in about a year or so, as we've said, and let's see how what, the progress that we've made on some of those topics. Right on. Thank you, Jim. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Harvey. Bye. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.